Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Our sense of what it means to be human is getting an upgrade these days from the indigenous peoples of the Amazon rainforest and the Andes. Capabilities that modern society had long dismissed as superstition are being rediscovered as Western professionals apprentice with native shamans and are initiated into ancient ways of wisdom. Science is encountering spirit, and something new is being born from the connection. But who is ready to do the healing that will give you access to the luminous knowledge that comes after? The opportunities are huge. The challenges are real. You're just in time for the evolution. Welcome to The Evolver, where each week I talk with inspiring pioneers of the new consciousness culture. If this show speaks to you, Support us by subscribing on iTunes, Google Play, Acast, or on the podcast app of your choice. Please share this episode with fellow seekers at the Meditation Center, leave a rating on iTunes, and post about it on social media. Our email address is theevolver at evolver.net for feedback. You can follow us on Instagram at The Evolver Podcast or on Facebook at Evolver Social Movement. Now, let's get started. Welcome to The Evolver, sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. Before the major religions appeared on the scene, the monotheistic faiths Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and belief systems like Buddhism and Hinduism, every tribe had its own particular way of connecting to the wisdom of nature, a nature alive with spirit. It was a verdant, dynamic way of being, based on visceral experience, In the Arctic, spirit came through snow. In the Sahara, it came through sun. People were raised to know how to hear the songs of plants, witness the vibrational presence of mountains, and feel into the body's energy system. This was a time before writing, before even our contemporary idea of history. The little we know about the way ancient tribal cultures related to the world comes from what has been observed relatively recently of surviving indigenous peoples. But by now, it's become clear that our supposedly primitive ancestors were actually tuned in to natural phenomena at a level that modern, supposedly advanced people are simply blind to. Sadly, for those surviving indigenous tribes, the subtle messages murmuring in the forest seem quaint and unremarkable compared to the supernatural capabilities exhibited by iPhones, space satellites, and Nikes. The brash electric glow of our technology overwhelmed the gentle, nuanced light that shines from the complex web of nature. But it's that garish glow that leads the young to abandon their traditional ways in the forest and move to the city, where they lose touch with the ancestral knowledge that kept them close to source. We see it all around the world, people seduced by the sensational quick hit that grabs your attention, and like the latest Marvel superhero movie, makes you feel full for about 15 minutes before you crave another quick hit of superficial sensory overload. Our screens are replacing the plants and animals 
the streams and soil that gave birth to the species Homo sapien. Our senses are dulled, our subtle feeling is dampened, and most of us don't even notice. Only recently have some of us who grew up inundated by these numbing technologies started to wake up and value the treasures that are being lost. More and more people are finding paths back to the wisdom of nature and recreating their lives around what they discover. Like my guest today, Itzhak Biri. Itzhak is a respected shamanic practitioner and teacher who, after a career as an artist and in advertising, found himself called to the shamanic lineages of the Amazon rainforest in the Andes Mountains, where he was initiated by the tribal wisdom keepers. He is the author of three books, including The Gift of Shamanism, Visionary Power, Ayahuasca Dreams, and Journeys to Other Realms. For over 21 years, Itzhak has bridged the spiritual and practical wisdom his indigenous teachers entrusted in him with a forthright contemporary approach relevant to our stressful and unbalanced times. He was initiated into the circle of 24 Yachiks by his Quechua teacher in Ecuador and by Amazonian Canamare Pahe. He is also trained intensively with other elders from South and North America. Yitzhak is the founder of shamanportal.org, the Andes Summit, and co-founder of the New York Shamanic Circle. And he received the Ambassador for Peace Award from the Universal Peace Federation in the UN. Yitzhak speaks with great clarity about shamanic practice from a contemporary Western perspective, not as a detached scholar, but as an accomplished practitioner. This is a deep episode with a lot of insight and gentle wisdom. You might want to listen to it twice to catch all the jewels. Everyone seems to be talking about CBD these days, that is, cannabidiol, the non-psychoactive component of cannabis. The buzz is that CBD doesn't make you high, like THC does, but for conditions such as stress and anxiety, health professionals are increasingly recommending it as an alternative to pharmaceuticals, and scientific research is showing that CBD is highly anti-inflammatory, so it can help with pain relief. What does the scientific research say about CBD? Research centers in the United States and elsewhere are studying the effects of CBD on a variety of ailments. Scientists refer to CBD as a promiscuous compound because it offers therapeutic benefits in many different ways while tapping into how we function physiologically and biologically on a deep level. Extensive preclinical research and some clinical studies have shown that CBD has strong antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, antidepressant, antipsychotic, and neuroprotective qualities. What's the best way to take CBD? CBD-rich cannabis oil products can be taken sublingually, orally, as edibles, lozenges, beverages, tinctures, and gel caps, or applied topically. Concentrated cannabis oil extracts can also be heated and inhaled with a vape pen. Inhalation is good for treating acute symptoms that require immediate attention. The effects can be felt within a minute or two and typically last for a couple of hours. The effects of orally administered CBD-rich cannabis oil can last for four hours or more, but the onset of effects is much slower, like 30 to 90 minutes, than inhalation. Evolver is the proud papa of the Alchemist Kitchen, a botanical dispensary located in the Bowery District of New York, where you can find the finest quality CBD products available without THC. We also make our own premium CBD under the Plant Alchemy label, 
Our producer Jose's mom uses it for stress, anxiety, and high blood pressure. Our plants are grown in both field and greenhouse environments, cultivated using living soil organic principles, leveraging strictly organic inputs, and in full compliance with the controls defined by the Colorado Department of Agriculture. Our plants are some of the highest CBD cannabis varieties currently known. You can find out more about CBD by visiting the Alchemist Kitchen website at thealchemistskitchen.com. There's an S in there. And searching for CBD. There are articles on the blog, an FAQ, and a selection of vetted products. Or stop by our spot at 21 East 1st Street in Manhattan, between Bowery and 2nd Avenue, and talk to one of our staff herbalists. At the shop, tell them you listen to the Evolver podcast and receive a 10% discount on any product on the shelves. I don't think that anybody knows that he's a shaman ever. The, the challenges to become a shaman is so great. What makes a shaman shamanic practitioner or, or shaman or claim to be a shaman is his total surrender to spirit and accepting his role in a community and become part of a community, part of the, the caretaker of the, of the community. There are many sh- people who are doing shamanic work, and they call themselves shamans, but they don't have any kind of uh, social responsibility for their community, for the tribe, for uh, the well-being of other people. And I think that if you see uh, a real shaman or true shaman that you know from all the places that I've visited, uh, those are the people who uh, not just know how to heal or know how, how to make ceremonies or to give some people teas. Uh, it is people who really are the center of the of the um, of the community, and the word shaman is from 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 the Tungus in the in Siberia, uh, the the tribe there, and then that that really mean uh, the keeper of the fire. Uh, many people who claim to be shamans, they, they they may do that in their kitchen or in their in their homes, or they they claim to be, or they, they dress with feathers, but that doesn't mean that they really do do the work of the shamans. Well, in the indigenous lineages that I'm aware of, those people who have been traditionally kind of chosen to be shamans by the community, effectively, it often happens at a very young age, or as the result, even in their relatively young age, you know, teens or say early 20s, after some kind of crazy traumatic episode where they're kind of thrust into the role in a way. More recently, what we're seeing is this kind of proliferation of shamanism as a concept. And many people sort of stepping forward going, oh, I can, I can be a shaman, right? <laughs> There's something very beautiful about the lineage, hugely beautiful, which I think is largely lost in the West when we talk about these shamanic practices. But you're deep in this and with a very strong connection to indigenous lineages in Central America, South America, and also having written a lot about it, studied it widely, you're really very scholarly and have a relationship to different shamanic practices around the world that are you know, still essentially in use. So I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about that and about how 
there's a kind of popular trope of shamanism that's kind of out there, which is interesting to see in the world and valuable. But then there's this other thing underlying it, which you have a very close connection to. I think that we have to realize that many people in the West or in the North, or what we call the, our Western civilization, were cut off. We are we really cut off from our roots, from our, our indigenous roots. And, and Ipopiara, my teacher, used to say that we are all shamans. We are all indigenous people, except that some people were so disconnected that they are not aware of their gifts. And I think that what happened now uh, in the last uh, 20-something years uh, with the new Pachakuti, the new, new prophecy, that many people are awakened. They are understanding that they are more than what the, the society allow them to be. And they, <clears throat> they, they awake, they are, they are asking their questions, they, they want to feel uh, their indigenous roots. In indigenous uh, societies, um, you know, I, I was just now in the Sicopa uh, in the in in the in the Amazon in Brazil in uh, Ecuador. Sorry, they start really young. So uh, a, an eight years old is sitting with us with the ceremonies, and he, he drinks ayahuasca. He's he's part of the community. They, he was chosen. He was uh, groomed to be, and that's also in the Andes. You know, they 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 realize the this quality of uh, of of a child. But in, in our society, it's probably true too. You know, like uh, we we have so many people who are incredibly uh, incredibly sensitive. We call them artistic. They we are, we are sensitive. They are caring. Those are the people who, and they and they also have spine. You know, uh, that they are. We don't really pay attention to that quality of the shaman. But those are. Those are inherently human condi uh, conditions that, uh, that those people have. And they, I think that what we see here, and that's probably why the uh, shamanic practice is so prolific now, is that because people are awakening and they are hearing the call or the inner, inner voice telling them that to, they need to re reconnect. Uh, but essentially, I think that uh, <clears throat> what um, my teachers in the Amazon and and he said that we are all shamans. We all have the qualities to become shamans. It's not everybody's calling. It's not everybody's life purpose to become. But we all know how to hug. We all know how to heal. We all know how to speak kindly with people. We know, we, we know how to be with people and uh, give advice sometime, advice in a good way uh, <laughs> to people to make, them, to make their life uh, better. Is that all it takes? Is that, to be a shaman? Is that kind of you know be a good guy, pay attention, be compassionate, say the well, right thing? Well, that's the beginning. Ah, okay. There's no <laughs> threshold. Well, you need to be initiated too. You know, so you need to go through. You know, the, the classic thing about uh, the the night dark of the soul or the 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 the, the shaman's sickness. Uh, meeting your death, meeting meeting your uh, meeting your limitation and overcoming it—that's uh, also part of becoming a shaman. Well, that's the hard part, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, just to say, because you know, you made it sound like at first it's not that big a deal. It's like you know, be open-hearted, be connected. But in fact, 
there's another level of commitment and engagement, essentially working with your shadow material, coming through that successfully, letting go of that, moving into another level of awareness, which in all these different mystical lineages from around the world, whether they're shamanic or you know Buddhist meditation, yogic, uh, you know every mystical school, there's a moment of quote unquote dying, letting go of your understanding of yourself and stepping into and accepting a different kind of reality. Yes, and and uh, we do a lot of dying in shamanism. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about that. You know, there is a saying that uh, you really have to meet your death in order to know how to live. You really have to um, understand the nature of dying to value the every moment that you are alive. So, and and I would say it in a different way. To be alive, you really under, have to understand the sacredness of, of living, of life, the miracle of that uh, existence. It's not, it's not guaranteed that you, you will be here right now. Oh, it sure isn't. Uh, absolutely. And yeah. you have to live your life like that, that every moment is a sacred moment, that it's a miracle that you're, you're still here and that you are able to serve other people and your community. And so you you have to live your life from a place of of what do I do today to make other people's life better? The name of the shaman is the is the person that makes other people's come true, uh, uh, other people' dreams come true. And so you have to live from that place. How can I be of servant service to you to make your life better, not my life better? And so that only you can do if you're meeting your death, only if you can understand that the mor- mortality of us. Shamanic practice is not about spirituality. It's not about being awakened. Sh- shamanic practice is to be, make other people's life more happy or, or harmonious and live life in balance. We are not really so concerned about people meeting their enlightenment of course you do that, but it's not about that. It's about keeping your body healthy, your emotional body healthy, and your spiritual body healthy. So when you say it's not, a, it's not about being spiritual, per no, se, right? No, not at all. But my understanding of shamanism is that as an approach to doing what you're saying, essentially you know, being in service, you're developing an attunement. Yes, to what's going on on a spiritual level. But that's a tool. It's a tool. That's a tool. It's not the end of itself. And it's not the objective. It's not the objective. You're not just learning how to recognize auras. You're not just looking for a, a, a way of connecting to the, to the intelligence of plants or to the, the supple connectivity of all of existence and your role in it. It's not simply about the revelation. The revelation in itself is not enough. No, it's what do you do with it and how you affect other people's life, not yourself. Mm-hmm. It is how you make other people in your community, in your family, life better. Yeah, because there's an awful lot of people who are getting turned on to that aspect of reality, to that mm-hmm. spiritual aspect of reality. 
and then simply seeing it, noticing that that's going on, that there are there are spirits, that there's lower vibrational energetic things happening, that there's some there's a connection to to source that's possible, that plants can talk to you, that animals spirits can work with you just to start a long list of stuff that's possible. But then having that revelation becomes, oh man, I'm a shaman. You know, like I know what's going on. No, so that's just the beginning. And a lot of people who come to my workshops and a lot of, uh, a lot of my teachings, and they, they, they have their revelation and they feel that now they are shamans. But it's just the beginning. It is like a, if you... If you Take a fork and you, you're not a cook, right? You just know how to use the... And a, a lot of people hang out on that, the fact that they see. And, you know, I, I too, when I, when I started and, and I realized that I actually see for other people and then I can tell them the future, the further world, whatever it is, you know, I felt confused more than I felt gratitude because I didn't know what to do with it. And really the, the next step, is how do you take the, your, your discovered gifts and apply them to your life and for other people's life? I mean, I see holograms, I see spirit, but it's what do you do with it? Right. It's not about bragging that you see. It's, about, it, it's what's the message that you bring from those spirits to confirm or to help you live life better. So there was a time when you didn't see things like that. Well... I'm That's very interesting because, you know, I all my life I was an artist. I, I was a painter, I was a dancer, singer, whatever it is. And I always thought that it's inspiration. It's like muse. I see stuff and then I put them on paper, on canvas. And it's interesting because you were talking about art, art before. Um, and it made me think of how Allen Ginsberg, who was a... Yeah, I know him. Guy, I knew him. You knew him. I, I, he was a uh, kind of. I like mean, a, I not knew him well, but yeah, I, he was I around the East Village when you were in the East yes, Village back yeah. in the day. He was like a teacher of mine, and uh, he used to talk about Bob Dylan performances in the '60s, basically when things were really at their peak. He's like Dylan was a shaman. He was a shaman because he was he was working with spirit and he was transforming the whole room just by simply performing a certain kind of energetic channeling, right? And Leonard Cohen too. I'm sorry? And Leonard Cohen, too. Leonard Cohen, for sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, but those guys never really learned some of the tools, the shamanic tools that we have, that, as you say, are available to sensitive people if they get the right training to develop. But I think that what they, they possess is the ability to do storytelling, and through their storytelling, and, and if you look at all of those people, you know, Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen and many others, they were telling you stories. The troubadours, that all of those people connect you to your soul through their storytelling, through their song, through their, that's what shamans do. You know, like all the Icaros that we are going into, the, in, you know, you, you're here in the jungle. And the Icaros are what? Just for people who don't know. Those are the chants that uh, shamans use to connect with spirit and to man manipulate or work with uh, with energies in the in the during the ceremonies. And you're saying those ikros are actually storytelling? Of course, because most people don't understand what they're saying. They are connected, connecting your soul to the matrix of life. They work with the spirit. 
the the voices or the the sound or the the plea or the yearning or their and the, the soul does not speak English or Spanish. They the soul understand the soul language, so they are connecting your soul with the the higher soul or the higher source, and 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 it allows to connect with the, the spirit of the cosmos and the nature. So, as an artist, you see, there's a there's for you when you were younger, certain tools <laughs> that became shamanic tools were already available to you. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I grew up in Kibbutz Beit Alpha, which is a kib- uh, the first kibbutz of the Hashomer Atzair, which is a the most communist socialist kibbutz that uh, had no religious uh, connotation at all, and, and actually was very much against it. Uh, but they uh, they had celebrations of the holiday of the nature holidays. Uh, we were very connected to the seasons to the agricultural season, which is what shamanic work is based on, uh, to the moon, to the sun, to the, to the fruits. To, and we were on the mountain. So uh, the mountain always speak, spoke to us. And nature spoke to us. And the animals, the snakes, the, the scorpions, and all of those uh, that were going wild over there. So we were always connected to nature. We knew every plant name, and we knew every tree's names, and what family they belong to and, you know, the bees and all of it. It was a very, very great education to become a shaman at the the end, you know, and I was singing or dancing or making art. This is all uh, expression of the shamanic work. So interesting. So you moved to New York, got into advertising as a way to make a living as an artist. Were you, did you think of yourself as a spiritual person? No. I mean, I always were interested. I read all Lynn Andrews' books. I read all C- Carlos Castaneda's books. Oh, yeah. So what called you to that stuff? I don't know. The, the sense of adventure. I called it adventure. Sp- you know, I didn't call it spiritual adventure. I, I thought it was like so cool. But I Did you uh, think it was real, quote unquote real? When you read, like you read, when you read a Carlos Castaneda book, did you go like, it's a great story. It's kind of like Lord of the Rings. It's kind of fun, you know? Or was it a sense of like, oh, he's, tuning into something. I thought when I read it that it's real because it confirms some of my experiences, but I never thought that I have any gift like that. That and you would ever be? That, oh, no. I, I never thought that I would do any shamanic work. So how did that open up for you? Oh, it's all by, inc- by coincidence, you know. Yeah, like <laughs> nothing is coincidence. Well, synchronous, we can talk about synchronicity, but I'm, you know, how well, did things, when you say coincidence, what was it that led you in, directly into that path? Well, I think that it's probably the dark night of the soul. You know, I, I, I got, I was in, uh, in my late 30s and I started to feel like, what the hell I'm doing advertising for? It really didn't f- fulfill my, my heart, you know, my, I, I felt in many ways empty. Uh, and I asked why, you know, and, and I, I can't complain, you know, because I, I own the agency. So we emphasize a lot creativity and we won all the advertising awards. Uh, so creatively, I was satisfied, but the, the creative part of advertising agencies was very mi- m- minor 
you know, I was spending maybe 10% of my time creative and the rest is organizing, pro pro producer, stuff. you know, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I felt, you know, I had a wife and three kids and it's supposed to be everything very heavy, but, you know, that's exactly what midlife crisis is. And I ask the big questions, why I'm here, what, why, what is the rest of my life is going to look like? And, I, and, and it took me years to, you know, maybe six, seven years to kind of like ponder. Uh, and, I, and I think that it's very natural. I can see a lot of people at that age that are going through the same kind of struggle within themselves. And then a friend of mine invited me to go with him to Hawaii, to the big island, to Kalani Hanua. And um, I had a, to have a book <laughs> to read on the plane. So I ran, I, uh, I took the, a car service and I, I told them to wait for me at the Barnes & Noble. So I ran to Barnes & Noble and I went to the new arrival. The new books. New books. Uh -huh. And I, I saw a book about Hawaii uh, and I grabbed it, I paid it and I ran to the, on the plane and opened it up. It was a Hank Russellman book. That's a pretty special book about Hawaii. As Hawaii, it is, isn't <laughs> it's not it? A typical book about Hawaii. So, uh, Hank Wesselman is a, a fantastic, very amazing uh, shaman. He's also uh, a scientist. He is writing about uh, his experiences that came for him or his channel through dreams about the future. It's very much like an adventure book into the future, which he actually, if you read it now, and it's 20-something years later, uh, you actually think that everything that he says is, is here. It's pretty, pretty on target. It's very much on target. It's, it's all about global warming and, and our descendant. What are we leaving our future generations with? You know, ruins? So that's his book. And he wrote three, two more books in that series. So if, you, if you're listening to me and you want to read that. It's called Spirit Walker by Hank Russellman. Uh, I sell most of his books because I really believe in him. He's a fantastic teacher. But uh, he also talked about his own initiation into a shamanic practice. Yes, with Makoa. In the end of that book, he write a, wrote about uh, a workshop he took with a guy named Michael Horner. I didn't know anything about shamanism or didn't know the word shamanism. And so when I came back, to New York, uh, I happened to go to the supermarket, and at that time, the, the open center used to put catalogs in the supermarket. <laughs> uh, and the open center, the open center is a is a place in New York that, for many years, since the early '80s, yeah. has been um, hosting uh, workshops and lectures in the New Age slash consciousness yeah. scene yes. like many of the top teachers yeah been doing this for many 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 years many years and and um i never went there i never thought that i belonged there i never thought that i have any kind of spiritual inclination but i opened this up and then i saw michael honor and i said michael honor i remember that name and i went to the book and i saw that this is the workshop that hank was talking about it so i went and there michael honor Michael Horner is a heavyweight in the history of shamanism. Oh, he's re single-handedly responsible for the uh, resurrection of shamanism. Yeah, he did a book called The Way of the Shaman. Yes. In 80, 81. Yeah. Where he is an anthropologist who since the early 60s had been studying in South America yeah. with 
different with the shawar. With the shawar. Yeah, he, co- he wrote a book, it's called uh, uh, Jivaro. Uh, but the Jivaro is, is kind of like a, not a nice name for the shawar, you know. Uh, but oh, anyway. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Well, the Jivaro mean wild people. Not the way they see themselves. No. So uh-huh. it's actually the word Jivaro is, is savages. But, uh, but the, the shawar, the word shawar means the people. The people. Which is what every self-respecting indigenous people would call themselves. For all the, the Jews, we're the people. Yes, right? and the Achwas, <laughs> uh, the people. Ah, so they, they are the true people. So, but yeah. it, but they're still people. <laughs> yeah, everyone's the people. Makes sense, and well, everyone everyone else is the savage. <laughs> of, of course, of course. But you know, in in Chile, the Mapuche is also the same thing. Mapuche is the is the people, right? You know, right. So it, it's. It's uh, many. He wrote beautiful book about the the Schwar. There basically was there was like a first generation of Westerners who found themselves in situations with indigenous peoples and were lucky enough to learn to be allowed to learn those traditional lineages. Yeah, Michael Horner being one, and and John Perkins the second one. Yeah. Uh, and they they were in the sixties. Uh, John John went to uh, in the Peace Corps uh, to become friends with the Schwar to find their resources. Uh, right, he from, showed up basically to screw them. Well, in a way, that, I mean, there's just, just that's to say, the he, book. That's, right, a, that's his book. He wrote one yeah. of the big best selling books of the last ten years. Yes, right. Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Yes, and so he went there, and he was a part of the CIA. Uh, plot to find out resources in the Amazon because that area is rich in resources, gold and and oil. Right, and then he and uh, he I, got he got really really sick. Yeah, and the only time the, and the same thing happened with Michael Horner. You know, a white guy goes to the Amazon, he gets sick. Right. So the only people who can save him are the shamans. Right, and they they. Gave him the medicine, the teas, and the Wayusa and, and the and ayahuasca too, and uh, he became uh, he understood the value of that. Oh, John became a remarkable advocate for the people of that of that region and an incredible educator yes. around their practices. Yeah. Um, so just to say, you first connected to Michael Harner through a workshop. Yes. Where you were coming in, basically. Kind of cold here, around, <laughs> other than reading a few books. Well, just was, one, one book. Well, you read you read the uh, Hank Wesselman book. Yeah, just and you read some Carlos Castaneda. Yeah, but I didn't even associate that with shamanism. Uh huh. Okay. Cool. It was, those are adventure stories. Yeah, it was like a cult or like fantasy. Yeah. I mean, if did you read uh, Spirit Woman by Lynn Andrews? You know, I never read that one. It is fantastic. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. I think every woman, every man should read that because it's really about connecting to uh, the magical power of the feminine energy that, you know, and we, we associate feminine energy with being weak, but it's not. It's about the, the, the witch in, within each of the feminine women, about the power, the true power. Mm-hmm. And Lynn is an amazing woman. I, I, I was so lucky to meet her and and work with her. We did some. You remember we did a a, a webinar with her for for Evolver. Absolutely, yes, it's yeah. fantastic. Yeah, it was. She's amazing. She's woman. amazing. 
and she's still alive. She still work and she's teaching. She have a group of women that she's empowering them uh, around the world. She's fantastic. So I took this workshop with with Michael Hunter, and I started to see, and I, I shared this story of what I was seeing with this woman I worked with. Now, what did you start to see? <laughs> Can I ask? Is it okay to ask? So I, I went to, I, I connected to my spirit guide, and this my, um, and it shows me a river and uh, an anaconda. You know, I'm a white guy from New York. Uh, she saw me <laughs> anaconda and... And then in that the bank of the river, there was uh, a nest with three eggs. And um, the anaconda came there, and he wanted to swallow that. And it was a sense of danger. And so uh, I don't remember exactly what it is, but when I shared this with this woman, she was saying that this snake represents that man she knows. And the three eggs represent the project that they are working together. And so she understood that this is a no-go. Uh, and so she, she changed her business plan. Uh, and I understood that there, I, I got the principle of all of that, and uh, I got so enthusiastic about so, it. So let me understand. You got a vision yeah. in the workshop mm -hmm. that you shared with somebody. Yes. You felt that this was speaking to her. What, it was a said, message for her. She said that. She said it. When you told this to her, had she, had you had a clue that that might be, that no. it might resonate for her? Oh, no, no. No, I just told her what I saw. But like, she knew right away when she heard it, she was like, oh, this is a message for me. Yeah. Interesting. But the more interesting part about it yes. was that she said she just came back from the Amazon. And she was on a trip to the Schwa. And I did not know anything about that. A year later, I was with John Perkins at the New York Open Center, and he said, would you like to come with me to the Amazon? And I just knew I have to go. So this was, this. so, now, okay, I want to step back for a second, because you said before, your spirit guides came yes. to you in that first workshop yeah. with Michael Harner. Yes. How do you know that it's your spirit guide? How do you know it's not a projection? How, what resonates for you that gave you a sense of that this is something that you did not have, say, direct access to before you're now starting to have access to? I never been to the Amazon. I never met Anaconda. I didn't know. I mean, I, I connected to uh, uh, my power animal, what we call mm -hmm. And he led me to a scene. He showed me a scene, which I had no experience before. I never knew anything about that. I was like total virgin. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. So you when you came into the workshop, you weren't coming with this whole expectation of, oh, it's time for me to have some 
Amazonian visions. <laughs> no, <laughs> I didn't know anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a surprise. It was like, whoa. It was. Yeah. Because, you know, for instance, now, and I can say this because I've heard it, uh, frankly, dozens and dozens of times, people are drinking ayahuasca for the first time without much context, without any background, suddenly having snake visions. Yeah. What's that about? And you're like, whoa, where did that come from? Why am I having a snake vision? I had a snake vision. Of course. Early. Boy, was I not looking for a snake vision. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a particularly quirky one, but it was real. It was a real, it was like, wow, that's a snake. What the, I never have snake visions. Yeah. And so the, the, the other exercise that he did was to journey into somebody else's body and see what's to diagnose people's uh, bodies, a, a physical body, emotional body. I was totally surprised that whatever I saw for the other, the other person was totally true. It really was very confusing because we tend to be, live in a society that does not believe in visions or in spirit or in holograms or in energy. And all of a sudden, you started to op open to it and you think that something is wrong with you. But the, the, the conf more confusing thing was that all of the things that I've seen was true. It wasn't, I was not making them up. Right. I was privileged to receive information about those people. And they can use that to make their life better. So I think that that's really where the, the essence of all of it is. It's not that you see, it's what you, what you bring the information to people that they can actually change their life or create more balanced life. You took the workshop at Open Center with John Perkins. Yeah. And then followed him down to the Shawar. Yes. In the Amazon. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, what I think that was so in impressive with John is his enthusiasm and his firsthand experience with uh, the shamans in the Amazon uh, and, the, and the Andes. Uh, we end up or I end up hooking up with uh, John Perkins' teacher in the Andes that he wrote about him in his book. I, he wrote about him in a, in a different name, but... He used uh, a different name for the same guy? Yeah. Okay. No, I, so I never knew that he was his teacher. Uh, oh, you met him independently, not through the workshop with John? Well, b before, before I went to, on a trip with John... I had a series of dreams, and in those dreams, I have met a, sh a shaman, and I have met also my tour guide, a tour guide. Both of, both of them materialize in the real world. And so this tour guide is now my tour guide for 22 years. <laughs> the guy who shows you around, like in the jungle? Takes you through the yes. or up the or up the mountains or like yes really <laughs> that's pretty good yeah this, that that's Juan Carlos Calavacci and and which I met him in a dream and uh, and my my teacher uh, or one of the teachers uh, Don Esteban Tamayo but that's that's not unusual you know that in in this world you know you always dream. You know, I had another dream like that with a Mapuche shaman, you know, years later uh, that came to me and said, come visit me. And I did. 
all, against all odds, I found him. He just told me his first name, right? but I found him in Pucon, Pucon in Chile. Wow. You found him? I found him. Was it, so what tools did you use to do that? My, in, my persistence. <laughs> well, I knew that, I knew that uh, whatever, whatever you have in your, whatever comes to you in a dream, it's not a coincidence. It's, it's a message from spirit. And they, you know, in that dream, that we, years later, uh, this man showed up. He was around late 70s, 80s, and uh, he had these very striking features, and he says, I'm waiting for you, come. And I ask him, what's your name? And he says, Jose. So I says, how can I find you? And then he disappeared. And then we went to Chile and uh, I already had a meeting with uh, other Mapuche and with other uh, Mapuche shaman, Machi. Uh, but most of the most of the shamans in, in Chile are women. They're not men. Huh. So <laughs> I didn't realize that. But I insisted, so I canceled. The meeting with the, with this woman shaman, and I told my daughter who lived there to uh, go to that we're gonna be we're gonna find it. She says I'm crazy. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, but you know she she went uh, she went home uh, in a taxi, and the guy the taxi says, "What are you doing here?" She says, "Well, we're going to, Bucon, to we're going to Pukon, and uh, my father is interested in shamanism." He says. If you go to Pucon, you have to go and meet this guy named Jose. He's the best shaman. <laughs> That's brilliant. And then we went. And what did he say when you got there? I knew him. I saw him. He was the same guy. What did he say to you? He wasn't surprised. He wasn't surprised. He didn't go. Been waiting for you. He was waiting. Yeah. But that's usually that how, how it happens. Mm-hmm. But you have to trust. Right. See, that's the thing. You know, one of the things that you, when you work with spirit, is you really have to trust that these visions, the dreams, the messages that you receive from the other side, you have to follow them. You can't just say, okay, never mind. So I saw a shaman, so what? It was just my imagination. It's not. No, this is going on for people all the time. There's a kind of tapping on the door. Mm hmm. That happens. The universe yeah. is trying to get your attention one way or another. Yeah. Right. And you can either ignore it, which is what most people do. Most people do. Or you can question it, probe it, be available to it in a way that begins an, en an engagement. And then the more you ask of it in a way to come to you, the more it'll begin to present itself. Yes. And this happens in every lineage. In every kind of mystical lineage, not only in shamanism, it happens all kinds of ways, or even outside of a lineage. It's more like what's happening, what we're seeing, I'm sure you're seeing the same thing. So many people who have no spiritual framework or grounding are just finding that that kind of tap on the door moment happens for them without any context. But if they pursue it, a context will emerge. That's right. Right. It doesn't have to be any one lineage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. I had a uh, Ipupiaram, the shaman that I worked with for twelve years from the Amazon. Uh, after his death, about a year later, uh, he showed up in a dream, 
And he said that he forgot to tell me one more thing. What was that? <laughs> it's something to do with uh, candle reading, candle flame reading. And so he says, go down and write it down. Oh, yeah. So I did. Wow. But, you know, and then I found out that's, that's really freaky. I was walking last year in the Tel Aviv Museum, and there's a Kabbalistic painter, Mordechai Ardon, and I was drawn to that painting, and I was standing by that. I always loved his work, but I didn't understand why. Basically, what Ipopiaro said, that the area where the light come into the candle is called the gates of light. And that painting was the gates of light. Wow. Gorgeous. Outrageous. <laughs> so I, I think the lesson in all of it is that we are surrounded by messages all the time if we just pay attention to it. And if we act on them, if we understand that life is not coincidental, it is a series of messages that come to you from spirit, from the other side, that teaches us about our life and give meaning to it. So that is available to everybody. I believe so. I totally agree. The way that it unfolded for you was your connection to these Central American uh, indigenous lineages where there is a thought, the, the way that many people think about them is that they have a kind of purity to their particular line. That there's, that essentially, you know, if you're going to learn from the shawar how to be a shaman, you're learning the shawar way. You're being connected to the shawar spirits, the way the shawar plants and animals, to the, the environment in which they live and the way that the, the practices emerge out of the land, out of the history, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So as an Israeli via New York, you show up there, right? How does this happen for you that you get this connection to that kind of line? It's that first of all, that they're even willing to share this with you, right? And, and, and you've talked a little bit about, you know, about Michael Harner and John Perkins and then one of your indigenous teachers, but I really love to know like the leap. How did that happen from the kind of workshop experience, which is a nice connection, right? But not necessarily so deep. You don't become quote unquote, a shaman in service through those kinds of workshops and then becoming an apprentice. There is really no pure shamanism. There is a, there is a lot of influence of different tribes on each other and on other cultures, which they adopt. But I think that they, the shamans there recognize who comes to with open heart and who comes to take. And they give for those who open heart with no judgment, with no expectations, uh, and I was lucky in that way, you know, that I didn't know why I'm there at all. I just came to experience something. And I, I just knew 
when John was telling us about this uh, trip, I just knew I have to go. I didn't have the money. I didn't have the time because I was running advertising agency. I, I, it was crazy. But you felt you had to do it. I felt in my bones that I have to be there. And what happened because you did? What opened up at that point when you went down there? Well, I, first of all, I went to Jose Joaquin Pineda, the, the shaman in the Andes. Uh, there's a, a small group of us, uh, my two Israeli friends, uh, Samuel and Ariel, we, we went with us and with Joyce and another the the trip the trip co-leader, and uh, we just hang out for three days before everybody came and we just like wandering around in the Andes. We had a list of shamans that w- are not included in the trip, and we just we went from one to another. And I had this an amazing experience with Jose uh, Joaquin Pineda, and um, on all of a sudden he did something to me, and I started to see. It's like somebody opened my third eye and I started to see these rainbows, these colors, these landscapes. This, I started to get messages. Do you know what he did? Well, that's what I do now. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's why I asked. <laughs> um, well, did he whack you? Did he... Did he uh... Was it subtle? Was he in front of you when he did it? He did it in the other room and he showed up and said, hey, no, guess what I just did? No, it, it's all part of the La Limpia ceremony. Okay. It, it's all about the cleansing ceremony and and the activation and, and the, the detachment work that he does. But I started to see, consciously, I started to see everything was different. And then we went to the Amazon, and then I had another work with... Uh, Don, Don Esteban Tamayo, where I had this incredible past life experience that later on I, I verified it in Vienna 10 years later. I got all the details of that life, uh, past life. But it was a, it was a very shocking, very uh, um, monumental in, in retrospect. Uh, but then, then I did, we did ceremonies in, uh, with a schwa. And I had this incredible uh, ayahuasca ceremony with uh, Daniel Bachapa. We had such a connection. He was doing healing on me while we while I was on ayahuasca, and th- my my visionary experience and my physical experience were one. And I could not understand how spirit and my body were reacting. At the same time, in other words, I was seeing something, but I also felt it in my physical body. And and that really got me confused. So when I came back from that trip, I could not hold the gap between what I knew about the world and what I experienced about the new experiences that I had in the jungle and in the Andes. And it took me about eight months of uh, of deep depression, refiguration, uh, integration of uh, all these experiences to understand that the old way I was looking or holding the world is no longer viable. It really doesn't make sense. When you start to open and then you look around 
and understand the way that the majority of the people you're surrounded by relate to their environment, to their bodies, their jobs, their family, their idea of success, their idea of health, you feel like you're out of your fucking mind. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It doesn't make sense. Nope. So when I came back, I, first of all, oh, th that was a beautiful lesson that I got there because I was, I felt so guilty about doing advertising, being in the jungle in the Andes. Uh, and then spirit came to me and they said, uh, the spirit of ayahuasca came to me and she said that, um, that people who are doing advertising are shamans. In what way? Because advertising people have to cater to the people's dreams and wants and needs. But the question I have about that is what kinds of dreams and needs? So I changed. So I stopped working for commercial uh, advertising and I did mostly nonprofit organizations. Ah, cool. So you're opening up. <laughs> I want to get to the initiation. Okay. Where you become, where you put yourself on the path towards becoming a healer and service yourself. Mm -hmm. That's a big leap. Yeah. Right? What was it that happened for you that was the catalyst for that? Well, I think that part of it is that we are looking for initiations as one big event that happens that you change everything. But I think it's also a series of events. For instance, one of my initiation was to drop a million dollars account that doesn't serve me, that was against my principles. But through the advertising agency? Yes. That was one of my initiation because That's I, a big deal. It was a big deal. But I didn't have any doubt in my mind that I'm selling my soul to the devil and it just didn't work with my values anymore. I think that that was an initiation. So it's a series of initiation. Is what do you do for the community? Uh, do you so? I one of the things that I started to do is with a group of people. We 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 formed the New York Shamanic Circle, which still exists from 1997, um, and we. Kind of dedicated my life to the to build that community. Uh, it's a lot of sacrifice, my sacrifice of my family time, my children, my personal time uh, to build that, that community, and it's a it's a, it's initiation too. Uh, and then there was a series of initiations, you know, and. You know, the, one of the initiations was uh, with Jose Joaquin Pineda. He's, he took me to the to Magdalena. It's a it's a it's a spring in the coldest day of the year, and I stood there naked. and And uh, he did a ceremony where I was totally connected with nature, the moon, the sky, uh, and I had to let go of my existence in a way. I had to give up on my physical body. <laughs> to uh, to merge with the cosmos, and then I had another ceremony in Brazil, 
with the Kanamari sh- uh, shamans who um, challenged me to wa- for to war with uh, with a spear. Yeah, and and um, so what? I mean, I'm sorry. I was not prepared. I, you hadn't been practicing your spear weaponry assault response maneuvers. No, I never did. <laughs> but I, I did. I was. I did not let him win. Good. That's the initiation. You know, we've talked about this. Evolver is now working on a new program, which we haven't announced yet. I'm saying this is the first actual public (laughs) articulation uh, of this uh, new learning community that we'll be releasing sometime in the next few weeks. One of the courses that will be part of the offering will be preparing for your shamanic initiation. Mm -hmm. You'll be one of the teachers. Um, Some of the other people we've talked about today will also be teaching (laughs) in that in that class. But I love the way you're talking about initiation here because we were really, the whole idea of that class, preparing for your shamanic initiation is this, is this framing of your spiritual opening through the tools that are available so that you can walk it yourself and go deeper yourself, right? The classes are all gonna be offering essentially deep dives into one aspect or another of this Central American, South American shamanic practice, North Native American. And it's very specific, right? And then, and it gets into shape-shifting, it gets into shamanic journeying, working with drums. We talked about this a <laughs> little bit the other day. Yeah. Not all shamans use drums. Not no, everybody it, in the West knows that. Actually, <laughs> actually, most of shamans don't use drums. Yeah, right. And they don't use power animals. And they don't use power animals. But thanks to Michael Harner, power animals are everywhere here. These things sort of propagate in a new context, right? And you know, some things, they propagate because they work, right? So it's a lot about what works. Yeah, I mean, a power animal essentially is spirit. So um, every shaman works with spirit, but not necessarily in the way that the core shamanism by uh, Michael Hunter works. Yeah. yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what it is to be to learn how to work with spirit? Well, first of all, you have to listen. From my experience, spirit are always communicating with you. My experience is that what we call spirit, it's very interesting because some people think the spirit is just an idea or, but I truly believe because I see that, that spirit are another form of energy. An energy that some people can actually see it as holograms. Now, just the fact that we some people don't see it, that doesn't mean they don't exist. It means that they are not capable or they don't have the frequency to see them. But in my work, I see those spirits and I, I can communicate with them and I can get information regarding the people that I work with. Okay, so. And I truly believe that they are in constant communication with us. 
And do we pay attention? Do we want to listen to them? Or are we constantly using our gatekeeper, our logic mind, to uh, protect ourselves from those communication? So you're going to understand why I'm asking this question when I ask it. When you say spirit is energy, yeah. on the one hand, I think a lot of people tend to think of spirit in an almost anthropomorphic or you know, kind of embodied consciousness sense of this as a presence with a conscious and an, and an intention, a volition in some way. And then energy is this amorphous kind of thing that, you know, it, it equals MC square. There's no, you know what I'm saying? There's, it's not a, a presence and an, a, an, and an intention or an awareness. So how do these two things work for you as essentially versions of the same thing? I think we have to get back into soul. <laughs> so our body is made of energies or uh, accumulation of atoms and molecules that are working together in, to form a shape. But what we are really is the soul, the soul part, the, the soul of each of us. And everything has soul or everything have energy or consciousness. And that soul part is not connected to your physical body. It is actually an independent energy that is make a contract with your body to be there for the for the duration of your physical existence and that soul can travel and that's what we do when we when we sleep you know we, a lot of people see it in the dreams that they they have a dreams that they travel and see different things and out of body experiences and that soul that's really what you that's what you are it is the operation system. It's like a computer, right? So you have an operation system that is traveling and, and seeing and connecting to other spirit, to other souls, and that is, sometimes you can see that. How do you work with that energy, that spirit energy, as a healer? In the shamanic training that you've done, when you're working with somebody, who is having some kind yeah. of an issue, a physical illness, maybe it's a psychic illness, in what way does your connection to spirit enable you to enable that person's healing? What is the approach? So you work in, in, in different ways. So, so one part is the soul loss or soul retrieval and soul mending. You know, that's, that's one part. And the other part is to recognize the souls of spirit that are around the person that either creating afflict or afflicting diseases or um, problems to that person. They want something from them. And so you want to do, you want to talk to them. So you are, I mean, the, the work of the shaman is to be able to communicate with spirit. If some spirit come, they want to communicate to a person, 
they may create havoc or create problems so that these people can go to a shaman, so to, to, a media, uh, to a person that can interpret what they want. And I had that in my work quite a lot of times where, you know, uh, people from the other side, you know, people from who passed away or, or people are still alive, they, they want to communicate something and they, they come there and, you know, I, I give them the messages that the spirit wants to, to convey. So there's many ways you can work with it, but the, the idea is that you communicate with spirit through your intention. The tool of the shaman is the concentration. And is that the idea is that you have to be absolutely, you have to concentrate on the issue or on that, the, the problem the, the client have and concentrate your, your mind or your energy like laser beam into that consciousness or spirit or uh, to communicate with that. And that's how you manipulate that energy. That's how you speak to it. That's how you ask that's how you create the changes that you want with the clients. Is healing ultimately a kind of purification, a clearing of stuff that isn't serving the client, the person who's suffering? Well, all healing is about bringing a person into balance. And whatever it takes to bring them to balance, that's what the shamans do. Sometimes it's, it's reconnect them to nature. Sometimes it's about removing negative energy or attachment that they have. But the, the purpose is that if we can hold that idea that we are all come to this earth in balanced, and the whole idea is to return the body, the soul, the, the, the mental health back into balance. In other words, to make the river flow without the white water, without the dams, without all of that thing. So the, the, the image of the shamans is in many ways is, is, a, is about taking the stones out of the river, taking the dam out of the river to allow the energy to flow in the person's body. And that's really the whole deal. There are many different uh, problems to create that like soul loss and attachment and detachment and, you know, many different, all these sicknesses. But they are, the purpose is to return a person into balance with himself and the cosmos. The spiritual energies that are available, you can experience them from the high vibration through the lower vibration, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. In Western terms, they talk about angels, right? And more demonic or Luciferian kind of energies, for instance, right? And somehow the darker, lower energies are often regarded as sinful or evil. You hear that a lot. Yeah. I'm wondering whether in the shamanic context, whether they're seen the same way, the darker, lower, the lower vibrational energies. Is it seen as evil? Well, Positive energy, a good energy, is energy that flows in the rhythm of life. Negative energy is heavy energy that all its purpose is to stop the flow of life. So all the akuras or the evil spirit or the, those uh, entities that are in the other world that are come to make evil, 
they are essentially come here to stop the flow of life, to create havoc, to create sicknesses, to stop life. There is a way to look at it in, in, uh, in another way. Around each of us, there is a, an orb of, of energy that is surrounding us. It's our individual atmosphere that you are the center of it and there's energy around it. And <clears throat> on the top, in your North Pole, we have positive ions that come from the sun that is, that is surrounding, creating that envelope. And then the bottom, you have the negative ions that comes from the above. And they all merge and they create the shield that protects you from negative energy that comes from either from the out from the outside into your area of uh, of protection. So when we do Olympia, what we're trying to do is we try to balance the area of re to remove access positive ions, and active and positive ions is to do with electronic computers, iPhones, and all of that, lighting, electricity, all of those energies that are depleting our life force. Or you can say it in a different way if you do Qigong, that the, the qi comes from the earth, from the negative ions. And to collect, the, to, to harvest, or to bring in more qi, more negative ions into your body is create health. So the whole idea of rebalancing your energy field, that makes more sense to uh, Western mind. Uh, so what, what has uh, negative ions? The earth, the plants, the air, sea salt, the minerals, right? All of those are grounding elements. So when people are out of balance in their life, too much electricity, too much iPhone, too much screens, too much all of that, they, their balance, the energy field is out of whack. You want to reconnect them or clean their energy field so they can feel fresh and strong and powerful again. I see this. But I'm also thinking of um, of situations that I know of that we've talked about. Yeah. Where say somebody comes to you because they're feeling, let's let's say that there's an entity that's with them, mm -hmm. that's dark and holding them mm -hmm. in a really difficult place. Yes. They're feeling tortured. Yes. They're looking for a way to release it. Yeah. Is that also ions? Well, those energies penetrate that energy field. The energy field is weak dirty, you can say that people that hold fear open themselves to evil spirit because evil spirit feed on fear. That's why you see now in, the, in our political uh, structure in the United States, more people are feeling fear and that's why they accept those evil spirits. 
So negative energies or, or evil spirit can come in many different ways. You can, you can send negative energy to somebody by your intention, like curses, envy, jealousy. But any and negative energy also could be in places where uh, there are wars, violence. It can come from curses that you unintentionally say, say to somebody. Oh, nothing good will come out of you. Uh, you your voice is terrible. You, you should never really, <clears throat> really sing. All of those, these are curses that people believe. They hold them as truth. That These are negative energies. So here you and I are in New York, two educated Jews talking about evil spirits. When did you first begin to feel that that's an actual thing? Because I imagine that at a certain point, until a certain point, you weren't seeing it. No, I was totally unaware of it, and not only that, but I, you know, I, I dismissed that. I thought it was just a uh, boba mice. <laughs> <laughs> I did too. Right. So, what was the moment for you? Okay. You so like? one day, this woman walked into my office. She was beautiful, blonde, talented, young woman, and. We did a reading, we did everything, you know, like we did La Olympia. And all of a sudden, I started to see this evil spirit all around her. It looked like what to you? How, do you, how would you describe that? I can't tell to? you. Okay. I don't want to bring that energy. Gotcha. But they, it looks like maybe what the Tibetan talking about or what other cultures talking about it. But it was totally unexpected. It was totally unwelcomed. I was not even prepared to deal with it at all. And um, and you were I, surprised? Oh my God, I was surprised. I wanted to deny it. And I, I realized that I'm not, I don't know what to do with it. So I already had a few years of experience, so I started to use my fire and my saging and my stones and my all of everything that I had there with me, you know, the sulfur and all of those uh, plants and all, to remove that energy. And then finally, I was able to get them out the door. And then I she was, was aware; she could tell. Even she, her body was totally different after that. After that, uh, this. But I was, if you saw me, it was like a movie, a, Holly, a Hollywood movie. It was just like I was running around and with all yelling and screaming and cursing and, and all the whole thing. Wow. I didn't know what else to do. Mm -hmm. But I knew that I have to be a warrior, that I need to get them out. And that's what I did. And then at the very end, when she was very calm and sat down, I said to her, listen, you know, I... This is what my experience. And she said, it makes sense. And I said, listen, I don't know what to do with it. I'll let me call Ipupiara, my shaman in Brazil, in the Amazon. I'll ask him what, what it is. So I pick up the phone, my <laughs> and I called his cell phone. And he was on the canoe in, in, um, in the Rio Negro with Shure, with the other shaman. And I said, Ipu. What the hell is that? And he says, what do you mean? These are Akuras. They're what? 
Akuras. Tell me what that is, please. Evil spirit. Oh. And I said, Ipu, I worked with you for eight years. You never mentioned the word Akura to me. He says, well, you were not ready yet. (laughs) (laughs) So he said, hold on. So I'm in New York in my office. He's in the canoe in the in the Rio Negro. <laughs> Brilliant. With Sheree. And he says, let me ask Sheree what he think. I was on the phone and I hear them talking in, in Portuguese. And then I says, okay, so write it down. And he gave me a list of all the things that I have to do for her. So I called her up and I said, listen, we have to do this ceremony three times. And I got instructions from this from my teacher from the Amazon. And, and if you're willing, we can do that. And so she came three days in a row, and we did the ceremony, and she changed. Um, she was an actress, and she was uh, writing scripts and all of the things, and everything started to bloom. And then she got married and all that. But so her life changed. Um, and then I started... To, then another woman came, and she had a, a tremble in, in her left hand. Uh, she went to all the doctors, all the neurologists and everything, and no, nobody knew what it was. And uh, we did a ceremony again three times, and uh, these things gone. Did you see something before the, you did the three well, ceremonies? She, she, had an, she had an Akura. She had a, you, was, you saw the Akura that yes. time, too, not just the shaking. Yeah. No. Uh-huh, okay. she, she had Akuras. Uh-huh. And they, were, they showed it in a different way. So I called Ipu Piyar and I said, Ipu, you didn't tell me that they come in different shapes. I said, everybody knows. <laughs> ah, I feel like such an idiot. I should have known. Yeah, they do. But they, guess, they, yeah. they come in different shapes and form. And, and you can also diagnose people who are, have attachment and uh, spirit, uh, evil spirit in them. Um, so, but I want to tell you that it's not necessarily it, in every culture they believe in that. Like, you know, we we did a webinar on that subject long ago, and and evolver, yeah, we did. Yes, and um, uh, Uncle and Angunk, uh, the Eskimos said that they they in their culture they don't believe in that, and John Perkins said that they don't believe in it, and so there's a lot of people in the, in different culture they don't believe in that, mm-hmm. except. If you look at their folklore and if you look at their legends, they're always something like that. So I don't know if the influence of Christianity and uh, modern life is influencing the shamans today, uh, but in South America, it's very clear that there are evil spirits, there is attachment. And in my experience, it's true. You know, I'm, I mean, Maybe I want to say something about uh, believe, you know, because in our culture, people say, oh, I don't believe in it. And believe has to do with religion. Believe is if you is saying, I'm not going to count on my own experience. I'm going to make a leap and I'm going to believe in something. But in the shamanic tradition, you don't believe, you experience. So right, right. I am one of the most 
skeptic people in the world. And so if somebody would come and tell me that my stories, I would say to him, you're nuts. Oh, no. I mean, I, I think about this for myself all the time. Like, <laughs> if I talk to if I met myself today, my 15-year-old, 15 years ago person met me today, I'd have me locked up. Of course. Totally. But when all these experiences started to accumulate, I could not say that it's not true. So because I have my experience, so I have the conviction that it's true. So I'm not interested in people say, oh, I don't believe you. You don't believe me because you didn't experience it. If you want to experience it, let me take you on that experience. And then you can see. No, exactly. I feel the same way. I talk about this all the time. I, I also am not a believer. I'm just not a believer. I've just had these experience. I've had enough experiences now that I have had my worldview shaken and reformed. And now I just see things differently, but it's all based on what has actually happened to me. I don't believe I'm sitting on a chair in Soho in a building. I am sitting on a chair in Soho. That's your experience. This is my experience. Try to deny it. I don't know. You're going to be, some people will insist you're a brain in a vat. I don't believe I'm a brain in a vat. <laughs> my experience, my experience not... has shown me that I am not a brain in a exactly. vat. Right. Exactly. My sex is too good. But I wanted to tell you another, another story maybe. You asked me about my first experience with the evil spirit or the dark forces of the universe. About five years ago, I think it, it was, I was going to teach in Poland and my, just before that, my uh, two cousins from Israel, they decided to go and do a route journey to go up to Poland and to find their, our family roots. roots. Alex Haley style. Yeah. Okay. So they did a lot of digging in archives and stuff like that. And they found a letter about my great-grandfather. And my great-grandfather turned out to be a Kabbalistic rabbi and a healer. Really? And more than that, he devoted his life to the struggle, the fight between the good and the evil forces of the universe. How did that express itself? It's all coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> outrageous. It is outrageous. And so... Well, he devoted his life is to bring the light into darkness. He said that, that the dance between good and evil is as long as the universe exists. And it's the, it is what we do to create balance between the darkness and the light. And so the, the struggle really is for us to take that light and shine it onto darkness to diffuse the, the darkness. And that's really, the, in all of us, in, in each of us, it's each of us work is to do that work. I find it fascinating. And the, to tell you the truth, when, when I read that, I felt like, wow. And I felt like, wow, I'm not unique. This is not something that just happened to me. It is something that he manipulated me to do his work now. But also interesting is that you're doing it 
not as a Kabbalist. No. You're doing it through the lineage of the Shuar and of the Kichwa. The, the Kichwa. And yet, <laughs> it's basically the same thing. Well, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. That if you ask me, here is a, a Jew who's doing this work of the South American spirituality or, or practices. You know, I was, I was at, in, uh, in the Rio Negro in one of these tributaries. We went to meet this uh, very old Umbato priestess. Her name is Bibi. Um, when she was 80, uh, all her disciples, all the people who came to her little lagoon, uh, there were like thousands of boats who came to celebrate her 80th birthday. We, we were there like when she was 83 or something like that. She passed away. Uh, beautiful woman. And we really love each other. Um, you know, the, the five times that I visited her uh, year after year. Um, and I told her, Bibi, what the hell a Jew doing in the jungle? With Umbato, <laughs> priest. I feel so guilty. And she says, everything is the same. Don't you get it? Exactly. Exactly. And I says, yeah. oh, you know, I needed an Umbato uh, priestess to tell me that in the jungle. But it's amazing how this, the, the, the shamanic traditions, which had really been shunned, in the mm -hmm. West, yeah. forever, are actually kind of spearheading an opening now among modern people to connect with spiritual energies and spiritual forces. There's a community emerging, right? Yeah. You're playing a big role in that through the work you've been doing through the New York Shamanic Circle, yeah. through your website, Shamanic Portal, yeah. shamanicportal.org, yeah. where essentially you're acting as a kind of, you know, uh, Master of ceremonies, really, mm -hmm. to give attention to, bring attention to other people who are working in these lineages yes. as well in the States for the most part, um, and also encouraging the creation of community around these kinds of practices. Yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, how do you see that going over these next few years? Where do you see it leading? Having done this work now for almost, what, over 20 years, really, in terms of yeah. seeing it grow from what... <laughs> must have been a very small little scene. Well, you know, I started in 95, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. And what's your sense of it today? It's very interesting because um, there is truly an amazing uh, interest in shamanism, in all sorts of shamanism. And a lot of young people are, you know, are very interested in the key portion of that in the plant medicine and in the Peruvian type of thing. When you say the tea, you're basically saying ayahuasca. Ayahuasca, yahe, natema, mm -hmm. all of mm -hmm. that. Uh, and it's beautiful, it's great. Uh, uh, and some people who graduate from the plant medicine, they are looking to go deeper into the, the work with spirit on their own without um, the crutches of uh, plant medicine. And I see 
I see that as an uh, as a change in society. I mean, it's really uh, if you if you look at it in a more philosophical way, it's more like uh, the prophecy of the Pachacuti that uh, you, you know the, the, the eagle and the condor prophecy that five hundred years after the demise of Atualpa, the, the king of the Inca. Uh, a new period will begin of cooperation, of harmony and love and peace, and the, the return of the feminine. And we are now, from 1993, uh, in a new paradigm of 500 years. We are just in the very beginning of it, uh, of recognizing it. And you can see it in the political thing, you know, with the progressive movement, getting the balls to demand uh, change and more transparency and more... Uh, accountability. Uh, you can see how all the old systems are falling apart. Uh, we see that the return of the of the feminine energy, and you can see it. You know, in the Congress, you have so many new women and new power, and women are now running the Congress, and there are so many more women are shouldering the the political power now, which is fantastic. Um, I mean, for us men, we have to understand that we have to share. The, the the power with the feminine energy. But it's more than that. I think that it, what we are talking about is a, that each of us, women and men, need to, need to accept that part of themselves, the, the feminine part and the masculine part. We can no longer be Trumps. We can no longer just pretend that we are masculine. Uh, we no longer can hold that thought that any weakness is weakness. It's, it's that we have to be strong with our sensitivity. That that's the balance between the feminine and the masculine energies. But it does not just for men. It also for women. Women cannot be the subordinates. They, they cannot be the, the the carpets that men walks on. They have to find the spine. And there is a new generation of women now that are coming out, and they're showing it. Uh, they, they can they can have red lipstick on their face, but they can also be incredibly sharp, like a knife, like what men used to be. And men don't, you know, you can see from the dialogue that we have now in our political arena that the men don't know how to deal with that. Mm-hmm. They are not, they are afraid of that. It's actually kind of great. Of course it is great. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm enjoying it. I've been having a blast with that. Of course, because yeah. it is talking to the that energy of history of this prophecy that the eagle and the condor will fly in the same sky together <clears throat> so he asked me about the future this and is the, a, yeah, when you say the eagle they're going to fly in the same sky together the eagle is what and the condor is what so the eagle is the western civilization i mean if you look at uh western all the empires in the in 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 our history, the Roman, the German, the United States, they all have eagle on their, as a symbol. Keep going. I just, we were just noticed, I just noticed the siren behind you when you mentioned the eagle on <laughs> the dollar, on the bill of the, the money of these powerful military operations. Of, yeah. Yes. So empires always had the eagle on their, on their, on their flags or on their buildings, because it it uh, connotes uh, power. And the eagle are predators. They are builders. 
they are territorials. They have good things too, but they are really symbolizing the mind, the ego, that part. Army, that's eagle. And the condor represent a, the other side, the heart. It represents a, a bird that fly very high into the sky, very much in communication with the sun. Uh, it allows it to, gl to glide, not to fly. It's, it's, uh, it's trusting the universe, and it eats dead. It eats those animals that are already perished. They never really kill, and they only eat the part that they need they leave the other parts to other animals to eat, so they share their food with others. They never build nests. They 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 lay eggs in the cervix of the of the cliffs uh, because they don't need to change the earth. Uh, they they can live with the earth. <laughs> so they are they are the symbolic of of the of living in sustainable living. So the eagle. Symbolizing the mind, the ego, the uh, condor symbolizing with the heart or living with sustainable living, and so the, the prophecy is that both that the which is we really feel it now that the the southern cultures will teach us to open our heart to be more of the feminine energy, and we the Western mind, the Western civilizations will give them the more of the know how. And there will be merging of, of the two cultures to create a better future for humanity. Before we go, I want to give you an opportunity to just mention the big shamanic conference that you organize every year down in Ecuador. Ah, uh, sure. Which is an extraordinary event, and people should know about it. Yeah. So <clears throat> my teacher, Don Jose Joaquin Pineda, asked me to bring people from, the, bring the eagle people to the south to meet the uh, the son and the daughter of the condors and um at first i was like really what what is he asking me to do i have so much things to do i mean i didn't want to do that and we were we, we were in the amazon at that time and i was like walking around and i was dreaming and um i don't know if you know michael stone he was there in the in the um in the jungle with me at that time and I was walking with him, and then I said, ah, maybe we should create the Andes Summit. I'm going to take 10 of my most powerful shaman's teachers, and we'll bring them to one hotel. And we'll bring, instead of the shamans coming and visit, traveling all around the world, and it's so difficult for them to get visas, and it's so bureaucratic, why don't we bring the Westerners people from the north, to come and make a pilgrimage to the south. And they can actually experience the prayers and the ikaros that the, those people are singing. Because if you say, Imabura, Kotakachi, Muhandita, you actually see the mountains. You actually see the, the rivers. You see the lakes. You, you have a, an emotional connection. And also the, the shamans, when they do healing, they have all the plants there. And so... Last year, I created, uh, it's called the Andes Summit. Uh, we had 45 people from 11 different countries of the world. And we all gathered in beautiful Hacienda, uh, Chola V, um, which is kind of luxury, but I don't feel guilty about that. 
uh, <laughs> and we brought they we brought them all to that place, and we had three days of uh, master classes by the teachers. Uh, we had ceremonies, um, and we we had a personal healing for each of the people, and but. The, we do it in the solstice or the winter solstice uh, in June because this is the most auspicious time to celebrate the sun, which is the god of uh, the Inca. The Inca, which means sun, right? The, the children of the sun. Uh, and it was amazing, magical time, uh, time for healing. And I, I think what really was so amazing to me was uh, how uh, the Westerners and the shamans and their families, we had 45 people from us, yeah, our side, but also 45 people from them, from the from the shamans and their families. And in the beginning, it was only the shamans came, but then it, they brought their children and their grandchildren and their wives. And so the whole community came and they were, we had 90 people there all together, eating together, sharing time together. And um, it was beautiful because also the shamans got to know each other and they start to develop trust and relationship with them. And that was a great healing. It was a great healing for us uh, as gringos or white people to uh, accept those teachings. <laughs> uh, and, and it developed trust between the two groups and emotional connection. And, you know, when you do a healing in, in the shaman's home, you're not doing it in a hotel room mm -hmm. or in a conference table or a conference room. It's totally different. And you are there with everything that they have to give. But I think the most important thing is, and that's really part of why this summit is so important, is to be able to show the grandchildren and the children of the shamans that their medicine, their tradition is so important that we are willing to sacrifice our time and come there and uh, pay for their services. And they can make money doing this work they don't have to go to work in banks or in computers. They don't have to create websites to make a living. They can actually continue to do this uh, grandfather's work. And we had that demonstration in the summit. We had grand, uh, one grandchild of my, of my teacher who came with shaved hair and tattoos and black you know, rock and roll uh, shirt in the very beginning and look, with a great attitude. And at the end of the summit, he came. Maybe that's the kind of like the, the, the way good things to to end this conversation. He came in front of all the assembly, and stood there, with the crown of feathers on his head, and with a poncho, with all the attire of a, of a shaman, and he said, in the most humble way how he appreciate being part of this lineage and how he proud of his grandfather. And he's made a commitment to continue to do this work. And we were all crying because that's really 
was so em emotional and and the purpose of all this work is to give them not give them but because we don't give anything but to show them how appreciative we we are that they hold that ancient tradition and they don't give up it's so easy to give up it's so easy to fall into that screen culture into all that money uh, and to continue to do this work because I believe that if we don't do that, and that's why I think it's so important for people to come to this anti-summit, if we don't show them that we are there not just with our words, but also with our deeds, with our money, we are willing to support them to continue this tradi tradition, they will do something else. They, they will follow us, and we know what our culture is. It's a disaster. There's, there is a dead end in our society without this, the, the teaching of the indigenous people that hold that way to sustain the earth, to keep our river clean, to have a connection to nature, all of that. So, you know, we, are, we have interest, not just spiritual interest. We have a practical interest to make those people keep on practicing this old ancient tradition because it is important to our survival, not just for their survival. For us, we can really fall into all of that jargon of, of, the, of the right wing people that we don't need to keep the earth uh, going, all the fossil fuel. But it's not true. We needed them as an example, as a teachers to help us and to keep this humanity going forward. And, you know, I have grandchildren. I'm, I'm worried about that. You all have children. What, would, what kind of world do we leave behind us? Who are we to use all of these resources and not leave anything to my grandchildren and your, your grandchildren? I mean, I could not look in their eyes and say I did not do anything about that. So this is what the summit is about. It's about really personal experience. It's not about believing. It's about experience that, knowing it. And huge things happened to people who went there. They, they changed their life. They made a commitment. They, these are part of those uh, movement of this new Pachakuti that we are talking about. So I really encourage you to do that. And I, I have a commitment to do it every year uh, because it's provide them with the essentials to continue to practice this ancient work. It's powerful stuff. And man, I really would love to come. <laughs> come, please. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I want to thank Itzhak Berry for being a guest on the show. And thank you, too, for joining us. You can find more about Itzhak at his website, Itzhak Berry, that's I-T-Z-H-A-K-B-E-E-R-Y dot com. And also check out shamanportal.org as well. I want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the ACAST team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, 
from his album The Secret Song, and our interstitial music are tracks by The Human Experience, Sunu from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia, and Here for a Moment on the album Gone, Gone, Beyond. Please check him out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Find the others. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.